Welcome, David Devonish. Let's just to say hello to him again. David, welcome. David, come and join me. Um, we had an amazing time last night. Um, David uh, began to unpack just the whole biblical journey of what it means to be one new family. Um, and, and it starts in the Bible. And I, I just want to say, if you weren't here last night, then you must listen to the recording. In fact, all the stuff that David will be saying in these next two sessions really builds on what he unpacked last night. And it's just a majestic vista of all that God is doing throughout eternity. And uh, I just want to encourage you to get that. It will be um, online fairly quickly, so you'll be able to get hold of that. But David... Sorry, sorry I shouldn't sorry. have... Put... That's okay. No, no, no. It's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll just move away from you, David. Just, uh, um, and, and, but David, honestly, we are so grateful. We, we have been uh, so blessed by David over the years. David is a great friend and brother of our church, uh, of me personally, and I know many here. And uh, we honor you, David. We thank you for the way that you have made space in the midst of an incredibly busy time to come and uh, serve us. So without further ado, bless thank you, David. You. Thank you. Yeah. Someone's, this might, yeah, it might get knocked off if I'm speaking. Okay, thanks. It is nice, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think I'll wear it, though. <laughs> yeah, as Richard said, uh, what I'm going to share this morning is how we work out uh, mission into different cultures, cross-cultural life in a multicultural church. So I'm going to teach on culture. Okay, so... Uh, the biblical foundation was last night, but I'm going to be very practical in teaching on culture today. And this will help us in two ways. First, in being a multicultural church, appreciating the different ways different people think. But also, uh, as we get involved, as you do, when you do mission trips, short-term mission trips to other cultures, and, as I hope some of you will, go long-term to serve in other cultures. Okay, so I make no apology for saying that. We need plenty more to go. And you don't have to be young to go. Okay. <laughs> All right. I always start with a few stories because it helps us connect. Um... An Indian pastor came for his first trip to England and he was going to actually mainly minister amongst uh, Indian churches, Punjabi churches particularly, but he was staying with a white English family on his first day. Well, he arrived in the evening before. They said, would you like something to eat? He said, no, thank you. Anything to drink? No, thank you. So he went to bed. Next morning, would you like some breakfast? No, thank you. And then, very traditional English home, so 11 o'clock in the morning, they said, would you like some coffee? <laughs> and no, 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 thank you. Lunch came. By that time, they were concluding he was, because he was preaching somewhere in the evening, he was fasting in order to really get before God for his preaching. So they half-heartedly asked him whether he wanted any lunch, not expecting him to say yes. 
Then in the evening, he went to his own culture, though in this country, to preach. And his first question to the pastor of that church who told me this story was, how do you ever get anything to eat or drink in this country? Okay. You might say, well, they offered it. No, they didn't. Because he needed to know they really wanted to do that. So they should ask him at least three times. Okay, they should prevail upon him to have it. And that's in the Bible, you know. You know the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus? It's one of the things that shows Jesus was Eastern in his culture. When, he, when they got to the village, he said, he made as if to go further. You know, he, had, he was actually, they had to prevail upon him to come in. And that's how many cultures function. Um, a guy from North Africa said to me, once I heard him give a talk for half an hour on how to greet Okay, this was in a uh, mixed group of Westerners and indigenous leaders. And he was trying to teach Westerners how to greet. Because, you know, we've forgotten how to do it in the UK largely, haven't we? And he said, I can tell from the eyes when you say, would you like to come to our house sometime for a meal, whether you mean it or not. Or whether you're just saying something. Okay, and a similar story, I read, this isn't one of mine, it's one I read. There were three young women on a plane and sitting together and knew each other. One was an American young woman, the other was in the middle was an American young woman brought up in the Middle East because her parents were missionaries there. And then a Lebanese young woman on the inside. And the American woman asked the one in the middle, which was not the best move, should have asked the one on the other side, what it was like growing up in the Middle East, you see. And so she told her a story a bit like what I've just told you. And the Lebanese lady said, I didn't know that. She said, what do you mean you didn't know that? You're, you are Lebanese. No, she said, I didn't know all the world wasn't like that. That explains why I've been so lonely since I came to America. She said, people at work, because she got a job there, asked me to go with them for lunch the first day. Of course I couldn't say yes. I couldn't presume upon the relationship at the beginning. And she said, after a while, because I could never tell whether they really wanted me to come, they stopped asking me. And I've just got terribly lonely. Okay. The friends were looking for a post office in a town in Turkey. And uh, they asked, they were driving around, 
asked for directions to the post office, and they told me to go down here, you turn left, you turn right, and ask again. So they did all that. They asked somebody else, who gave a very similar instructions. In the end, they were back where they started. Actually, there was no post office in that town. <laughs> but the shame of admitting that, and also the desire to please the inquirer, When I was in banking, which I was before I did full-time Christian ministry, I was actually in the Marshall Islands. I was responsible for giving the Marshall, government of the Marshall Islands their first ever loan. It's in the South Pacific. It took me 41 hours to get there. But uh, next to my hotel on this coral atoll was a... Uh, a church. I thought, oh, I'll go there on Sunday. But there was nothing outside to say when it started. So I, on Sunday morning, I went along there and found someone outside the church building and said, what time does the service start? He looked at me as if I was crazy. So I thought perhaps he didn't understand. So I said, do you speak English? Because some only spoke Marshallese. And he said, oh, yes, I speak English. So I said, what time does the service start? Now, you know what it's like when you're talking to someone who you regard as a complete idiot. <laughs> and he said to me, when the people get there, of course. <laughs> now... For some of you, this is old history. For people of my age, it's current affairs. But the, um, the Israeli-Palestine problem has been a massive issue for decades. There was one time when they got very close to an agreement, when a man called President Carter, Jimmy Carter, does anyone remember him? Okay, was president of the United States. I was actually serving on UN committees at the time he was president of the United States. And it's amazing the respect that America was held internationally at that time, though in, the, in his own country he wasn't very highly regarded. And uh, he gathered the Palestinian leader of the time, Yasser Arafat, and the Israeli leader of the time, Menachem Begin, and they had a... a conference and actually did get to an agreement though it didn't finally work out but after several days the press were asking you know what's happening like the press do so they said to President Carter Mr President have you made any progress now he was a president that understood culture and he's replied yes we've made very good progress could you tell us what you've agreed he said we all know the names of each other's grandchildren. <laughs> he got the order right. Relationship before what you achieve. You understand? Now, I could tell so many stories. I could tell the whole, do the whole session on stories. Are you learning, by the way? You see, you are learning, even though I'm not giving you any principles. 
which is the point I'll make later. Once when I was in Turkey, in one of our churches there, which started as an international church, but for many years now has been a Turkish-speaking church, with translation in headphones for a few internationals. Uh, but because there's a lot of internationals in that church, I was asked by the Turkish people who knew I gave lectures on culture, could I give them some lectures on how to cope with these foreigners that live amongst them, you see? These Westerners. Now, when I... Because it's hard to cope with Westerners sometimes. And uh, so... I thought, I, I always start with a story like I did the, the Indian visit to here to make people think about different culture. So I said, how can I do that the other way around? Then I got it. So I started my talk with, did you know, in our nation, parents put their children to bed three or four hours no, not, no, yeah, three or four hours before they go to bed themselves. If they're young children. You could heard of a pin drop. They said, what? And then they said, well, why would they do that? And, because that's, a tiny minority of the world does that. Did you know that? North Europeans, that's all. And the effect of North Europeans who've emigrated elsewhere. It's a very unusual thing to do. And it quite shocked them. And someone said then, well, how, how do they know exactly when they're going to bed themselves in order to calculate how many hours before that the children should go to bed? That was one of the questions. <laughs> then I can still see this lady's face I know her well but she finally summons up courage to ask what everyone was thinking she said don't English people like their children <laughs> this is culture so what is culture includes how we traditionally behave, but we don't quite know why we behave that way. We can later work out reasons like, oh, they need to go to school in the morning, but so do children in most countries. Family traditions, because families can have their own subcultures, dress, arts, taboos. That's what practices are acceptable or unacceptable. I remember someone... This was in the UK, a church pastor in one of our churches said to me, we're now doing English lessons for people from Muslim background who are learning to learn English. Good thing to do. And he said, so I'm going to introduce some Bible stories. I said, okay, that's good. He said, we're going to start with the woman at the well story because that challenges their culture. I said, don't ever do that. <laughs> I, got quite, I don't normally get very directive. I'm usually just giving advice. If you read the book of Acts carefully, they found points of agreement before they found points of difference. If you started with that story, they would have concluded Jesus 
is a wicked man. That's what I concluded if you started there. Would have confirmed all their prejudices. Now Paul started with, oh, you're very religious. And you've got an altar to the unknown God. He started in points of agreement. He didn't start in points of, obviously we need to move on to other things. It's not where you start. Relationships, how society is organized. An anthropologist defined it as the integrated system. Forgive me these quotes, but they just sum it up somehow. Integrated system of learned behavior patterns which are characteristic of the members of society and which are not the result of biological inheritance. In other words, it's not in your DNA. It's in your upbringing, but you see it as that's the way the world works and that's right. Charles Craft, a missiologist, said, relationship between culture and human beings is like the relationship between water and fish. You don't function outside of culture. And you don't know you're in it, really. One dear lady who was working in the Middle East said to me, she was from South London, until I came here, I didn't even know I had a culture. <laughs> because we don't. And this is important, just follow it through. Culture can be defined as the way of life of a particular society, including its patterns of thought, beliefs, behavior, customs, traditions, rituals, dress, language, rituals. You know, the most cultural things are things like when someone is born, how they do weddings, how they do funerals. Very cultural. Language, art, music, and literature. These particular systems of beliefs and practices are based on the assumptions people make about themselves, about the world around them, and about ultimate realities. Cultures involve the worldviews, social structures, and institutions that gives meaning to life. Cultures provide, this is a very important sentence, cultures provide people with the means of expressing their deepest feelings, formalized in ways understood and accepted by those around. It's very hard to be totally free to express your feelings cross-culturally. Do you understand? Now, I've learned to in some ways. I'm, I'm not a touchy-feely person, okay? I'm not into all that in my own culture. But when I go to other places, I've learned to take a walk holding hands with other men. I've learned to do these. Because I know that expresses the feeling. And it's hard. It's hard to do that. And in a multicultural church, you need to remember that. I'm getting a few nods. Tim Keller put it this way. Every human culture is an extremely complex mixture of brilliant truth. This truth in every culture marred half-truths and over-resistance to the truth. Every culture will have some idolatrous discourse with it, including ours, and yet every culture will have some witness to God's truth in it. 
God gives out good gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty and skill completely without regard for merit. He casts them across like a culture like seed in order to enrich Brighton and preserve the world. That's culture. That's not, that's not even when you're being biblical or not. This is what God has done in his, what theologians call his common grace. And you don't want to deny people the beauty of their culture because they're in a different place. Christian cultural diversity was built into the Christian faith. In Acts 15, which declared the new Gentile Christians didn't have to enter Jewish culture, the converts had to work out a Hellenistic, that's a Greek way of being a Christian. So no one owns the Christian faith. There's no Christian culture the way there is an Islamic culture, which you can recognize from Pakistan to Tunisia. Okay? I do not use expressions like Christian culture. I don't even say kingdom culture, which is quite popular. I say, no, it's Christian truth expressed through different cultures. And the expression, therefore, will be different. That's the beauty of Christianity. It does not impose culture, it expresses through culture. Okay? And the humility is the first step in cross-cultural engagement. Peter said this, all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. And remember, most of the churches in the New Testament were multicultural churches. Dress yourself in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, even if you're proud of your culture, and gives grace to the humble. A friend of mine, uh, well, some of you may have heard him speak at the Catholic Festival a couple of years ago, uh, who planted churches in Istanbul, still serves in the Middle East. Andy McCulloch has written an outstanding book, which if you want to get hold of this subject, get, get this book called Global Humility. Global Humility, the way we approach different cultures and so I'd really recommend it to you now there's different sorts categories of cultures now the danger with categories is that you're making generalizations but generalizations help us to un to help our thinking even as long as we don't uh, make generalizations a rule you know but they can help us because there's different ways of categorizing cultures and basically, the first category is in relation to how you understand what is right or wrong. I'm, all, is almost a, I'm almost going into one culture there. But what's acceptable or unacceptable in the culture? How you keep order in the culture? And there are actually three factors which bring these controls to human personality in every culture. And most cultures, all cultures will be, will veer predominantly to one of these three. Okay? So, 
security anxiety. In other words, you've got fear and looking for security. Honour, shame. You don't want to be shamed, but you want to receive honour. And law, guilt. Western culture, though it's changing, and if I've got time at the end, I'll talk about how it's changing because we need to reach millennials as well. Okay. But traditionally, Western culture, and therefore most Western hymns and most Western worship songs are based on law guilt. You know, so... And on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Amen. It's true. You could equally say, on that cross where Jesus died, the honour of God was satisfied. Christ died for our sins. He died for our shame. Okay. So, anxiety and security is in cultures which are traditionally animistic. So, how you... So... No, don't do that. You'll offend the ancestors. Don't do that. You'll offend the spirits. Okay, so animistic cultures, particularly many African cultures, are, are, are based on that. Then most Eastern cultures, and often the further East you go, the more it's so, are honour shame... That is, you don't want to lose face. You want to give honour. One of the problems is that honour is seen as a limited good, just like land is. Okay, if you know, if Richard took half my garden, I don't have it anymore. Okay, land is limited. Similarly, in an honour shame culture, if Richard gets really honoured, that means I'm less honoured. which is important, particularly when you're ministering in those cultures. And then law guilt is seen in Western societies, leading to concepts of right and wrong, my rights, and also an individualistic approach to life and the gospel. Now, anxiety, shame and guilt were all seen in the fall of man in the garden. Notice Anxiety, they hid. Shame, they were naked and covered themselves with fig leaves. Guilt, they blame shifted. You understand? So all three cultures were there. All three cultures are in the atonement, as I've already alluded to. So on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. On the cross, hanging naked as a, sl- as a condemned slave, which is what crucifixion is, he carried shame. And he defeated Satan so that uh, the fear might be dealt with and Jesus is risen. See, in the atonement, all three. How you teach depends on... So if I'm in an Eastern context, I'm teaching grace mainly to shame. 
rather than to law. If I'm in a multicultural context, I have to handle all three when I'm preaching about the grace of God. Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. The cross was shameful, as I said. In the cross, Jesus bore the guilt of our sins, the shame of our offence against God and one another, and the power of Satan was broken. This affects things like our worship. Some cultures love songs that talk about Satan being defeated. No, lower, lower, yeah? higher, higher, amen? Jesus, higher, higher, Satan, lower. Okay, because they're anxiety security cultures. Western culture love the fact that our sins are forgiven. Eastern cultures love the fact that the honour of God was satisfied and all shame was abolished. Jesus endured the shame. And that needs to be reflected in worship. Then this hot climate and low cold climate context, okay? Now that's a bit of a generalisation because Russia is a hot climate context culturally. <laughs> but uh, basically, this means in hot climate, relationship is the priority. In cold climate, efficiency is the ruling value. Okay? Now, every culture values relationship. Every culture wants to get things done. It's a question of the priority. So if I'm in the East and I'm walking to a meeting at 10 o'clock, and at 5 to 10, I meet someone I haven't seen for 20 years, of course I spend time with them. And I ask about their father and their uncle and their cousin, and, their, and we, we could talk for another hour. Haven't seen. I arrive at my appointment. I'm sorry I'm an hour late. I met someone I hadn't seen for 10 or 20 years. Perfectly acceptable. Whereas in a Western culture, you see, seen and not seen, hi, give you a ring sometime. Okay, I've got a meeting. Oh, you've got a meeting. Okay, we understand. <laughs> Because efficiency trumps relationship in the West. In many other cultures, in hot climate cultures, relationship trumps efficiency. In fact, one of my friends says, efficiency is a Western idol. Anyway, because uh, there's a difference between efficiency and effectiveness. You get things done through relationships, which is very effective, though it may not be efficient. Do you understand? <laughs> then high context and low context cultures. And the, Britain has changed over the last 50 years from being a relatively high context culture to be a low context culture. You just only have to look around. Most of you are casually dressed. One or two smart casual, but 
most just casual. That's because it's a low, coming to church is a low-context event. Let me explain. I was in Pakistan, and uh, I was in my hotel. I used to stay in homes, but couldn't after a while because I have to be guarded all the time when I'm in Pakistan. Uh, and I came out dressed smart casual, I wouldn't go below that, to preach in Pakistan, which most of them would in most of their services. So the pastor said to me, David, will you please present the certificates tonight? I said, what certificates? He said, everyone who served well in the church this year, we're going to give a certificate. Okay. Now, low-context cultures wouldn't give certificates for that. Low-context cultures might just say, sometimes, if we remember, those who've really taken responsibility or served, let's... Okay, that'll do. So I said... I'm very happy to do that. Give me five minutes. So I went back to my hotel room, put on my suit, which I'd taken to Pakistan in case this happened, put on my tie, put on my smarter shirt, and went to a high-context event because I was presenting the certificates. Okay? Many cultures coming to church is still a high-context event. High-context cultures operate on the following assumptions. The context of an event is as important as the event itself. Okay? The listener is responsible for understanding communication. So often in a high-context culture, people won't ask questions because that's implying you haven't communicated properly or that they haven't understood properly. They wouldn't want to dishonour you by asking a question and feel they're responsible for understanding anyway. Experience is equal in value to fact and life is viewed holistically. It is difficult for a high-context person to view life in compartments. Low-context people do that. So they have certain little high-context events that they'll put on their suit for, but they're diminishing in the UK. But for a high-context person, there's no work life, home life, social life, or spiritual life, but life. And we get it wrong if we're trying to communicate because West um, low-context people will say, okay, this is my spiritual life. Oh, I, I can't go to church then because that's my family time. Please understand. That's, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's right in a low-context context. Sorry, low-context. Uh, but you understand? common Christian expression, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, means very little in a high context culture. Because you aren't separating you from what you do. 
Better to say, God loves you, though you're a sinner, and he's able to set you free from your sin or shame. Understand? Low-context cultures believe the content of the message is more important than the context. Okay, so was it good? Not was everything all right, was he dressed all right? The speaker is responsible for the communication. So if I'm not communicating, it's my fault, not yours. Oh, it was boring this morning. They and others are defined by their recent achievements, not the underlying relationships. And analytical thinking is preferred. You understanding? Can I be like, no, no. Uh, the, <laughs> see, um, guy was sent to a particular town in Turkey to plant a church, and he got a small group, but there was one, none of them were believers yet, but there was one older Turkish man who totally dominated conversation. And the others never got a chance. And he, this missionary is getting more and more frustrated with this. In the end, he felt he had to address it. And because he was nervous, he just addressed it with the man, who got very offended. We then sent an experienced missionary in to try and sort it out. And so he said, and he, he, the experienced missionary was trying to explain what the dynamic was. Oh, he said... I didn't mind him telling me not to speak so much. But he didn't call me Arby. Arby means older brother. And you would never, ever talk to anybody older than you, any man older than you, in Turkey without saying, David Arby. Or Abla, if it's an older lady. Now, the offence was the high context, not... What he said. The offence was he forgot to say whatever the name, Mehmet Arbi, whatever his name was. Because high context cultures have terms of respect. Don't ever take that away from people from high context cultures who come into a low context culture. Because it'll offend their conscience. You understand? Then there's oral and print cultures. I'm telling lots of stories for the oral cultures and I'm sticking things up there for the print cultures, okay? Because both, I've got both here and I have to help both of you. Print cultures, if they only have stories, will think I'm being too simplistic. And when am I getting on with the teaching? Okay, so... <laughs> oral communicators learn in a very different way than do literates. A primary oral communicator, that's someone who can't read or write, 
only knows what he or she can remember and produce from mem- reproduce from memory at the given moment of need. Conversely, a literate tends to feel he or she knows whatever they've been exposed to and whatever is available to them in their notes, files, computers and materials, regardless of whether or not the information can be recalled from memory. You say, I know, you don't know, but you know where to look it up. That's what the next thing says. Oral communicators find it difficult to understand and remember outlines, lists, steps, principles. Most literates can't remember them either. So you give your four points. Most literates don't remember, but they've noted them down. And if someone really pushed them at the home group, they can look it up. Preachers can tell how many of their people have oral communication tendencies when those members tend to remember the preacher's illustrations but not their sermon points. (laughs) Yes? 70% of the world are oral learners. Probably 80% of the preachers preach from concepts because they've been taught that way at Bible school. Sometimes we teach people how not to be able to communicate with their own people. <laughs> it's called when we call it pastor's training. So the... <laughs> and the proportion is growing, not lessening. Because the emerging generation learn through YouTube and things, not through lists of principles. Many people leave university and never read another book. Oral learners learn best through stories, like to keep things intact, use intuitive reason and store truth in remembered stories and proverbs. Which is why proverbs are also so important. Parables and proverbs are very important when teaching oral learners. Print learners use lists of points, principles, and steps, like to break things apart, like to analyze. They call that expository preaching. When they've analyzed it. No, no. Telling stories is expository preaching as well. You're expounding what the Bible is saying. It's just a question of the method. Use formal logical reasoning and store truth in written abstract principles. Yeah? I was in southern Russia and we'd done a Bible school, pastor's Bible school there. We were doing it for two weeks every, about five times a year actually. And uh, one my friend said to me, he said, this stuff is very helpful. It wasn't reflecting on my teaching, it was reflecting on somebody else's because I saw him afterwards. This is very helpful, he said. But, he said, at the end of two weeks, I'm sick of Englishmen and lists. (laughs) I want something to speak to my soul. So preaching for oral learners, biblical stories frequently... Keep the narrative quality of the passage intact. In the West, you have an expression, the point of the story. That's meaningless in most of the world. 
The story is the story. But often we finish when we get to the point of the story. We don't tell people what happened next. And sprinkle the sermon with proverbial sayings. When I'm teaching in most public settings, between 50 and on, a, on an ordinary Sunday meeting, not the seminar, this is a seminar, but 50% to 90%, depending on where I am, of the preaching will be story. The Bible story. Right. Okay. I'm going to leave out on the PowerPoint discipleship and worldview change. It's a very important subject, but I haven't got time for it. And I'm going to leave out gospel change. Churches look different. I'm not going to talk much on that, but I will just look at the diagram. Can you just put up the diagram, please? Okay. Because when you're learning about culture, I'd this this tool I use in lots of different contexts, which I've only got, uh, I'll just go through it very briefly. Most of culture is unseen. So there's different levels of culture. What is seen is behavior. How people dress, what they do, whether they turn up on time, all those sort of things. That's behavior. Most of culture is unseen. So the next one down is feelings. As we said before, it's hard to express feelings cross-culturally. Next, values. What's important to me? Again, you don't talk about that, because they are. And people in the same culture understand Beliefs, and then worldview, which is how the whole way you look at life. Now, the gospel has to go to worldview to bring about a biblical worldview. Then, in different cultures, beliefs might be the same, but then, in different Churches, things will start being different. So values, some values will be the same because they're Christian values in the scriptures. Other values, like whether you prioritize relationships over efficiency, will be cultural. So they'll be different. Feelings will still be different. And the churches will look different but the gospel has transformed the worldview, therefore true discipleship has taken place. Do you understand? In fact, if the churches look the same, it means worldview change hasn't happened. Because you've adopted the externals of a westernized religion or whatever, and you haven't penetrated worldview. Also, many Westerners have not been discipled about worldview either because they still retain a Western worldview which has a Christian flavour to it, but it's not biblical. 
Do you understand? Now, you know, I could do a whole hour on that diagram, but I won't. Just to introduce you to it, because it's important. Just one illustration, a story, because I have, that's conceptual. A story. Yeah? Okay. I was, again, in Pakistan, and I was teaching in the days when you could do big public meetings before the security got difficult. And I, I was preaching in this interdenominational gathering in Peshawar, that's in the north of Pakistan. And about, I've been told that, although the start time was slightly at a um, movable feast, the end time had to be a certain time because they had to get out of the hall by then. So I got back 15 minutes to go in my preaching and suddenly two buses turned off outside. Packed buses. Now, what do you do as a preacher when, after you've been preaching for three quarters of an hour, your congregation more than doubles? <laughs> These packed buses, people piled in and they all came to the front because the tradition is everywhere that you sit at the back unless there's no seats at the back, then you have to come to the front. You know that tradition? Anyway. <laughs> so, then it was quite obvious they had no interest whatsoever in anything I was saying. And they all started chatting amongst themselves. They were passing sweets along the row, settling down. Now, these were at least nominal Christians. They were Christians. And I then said, I'm going to pray for you. They all came forward holding up full bottles of water. So I said to the brother who was translating for me, what are they doing? Oh, because a holy man of God has come to town, you have to bless their water bottles so they can pour a drop out each morning so they have good luck. Now, these were Christians. If you said, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. But their worldview was still pagan. You understand? Now, if there are any oral learners here with courage, you'd say, what did you do next? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but because you're all polite. What did you do next? Thank you. <laughs> what did you do next? <laughs> I had to think on my feet pretty quick. I couldn't affirm a pagan worldview but I couldn't dismiss those people. So I said, I will pray for you all, and personally, I'll pray for you, not particularly your water bottle, but if you put your water bottle up while I'm praying, okay. You understand? 
Number next one, discipling is primarily corporate and New Testament. I've covered that yesterday. Developing leaders cross-culturally. Leadership signals differ from culture to culture, and this is one of the most hardest things to do. Often, if you're in mission, you fail to raise up the right leaders from other cultures because you're not looking for the right signals. And in cross and in multicultural churches, we do the same, make the same mistake. The sign of leadership in a Western context is often taking initiative, joining in the discussion, pushing yourself forward a bit. Oh, yeah, needs a bit of sanctification, but is very definitely a leader. Other cultures that are more group-oriented don't need that. If someone has expressed the point of view, you don't need to say it as well. Remember, brother, I know a brother in our church gave a testimony. He's from West Africa. And he said he had always been taught never look at somebody in the eye. Okay. You've learned that too. And he said the hardest thing for him, and he's a professional in a top job, the hardest thing to do coming to England was to look people in the eye. But when you're looking for leaders, if someone never looks you in the eye, you think, in a Western context, a bit shifty. No, no. They're just being respectful. So we look for the wrong things. Whether you are respected in the community is much more relevant to leadership than whether you take initiative. There's also different views of age and maturity, although that can be a stronghold. And so David was still chosen as the youngest. So it doesn't mean that worldview is always right. So when you're looking for leadership, you think, who do people in that culture respect? Not necessarily the eloquent and able young Bible teacher. Okay. We have appointed elders in a church in Istanbul. One of the Turkish elders I appointed, it was both Western and Turkish, had been a believer two years when we appointed him. Okay. When I visited the church and hadn't seen him before, he was leading early on, he was leading the meeting. And I said to Andy McCulloch, who I mentioned earlier, how long has this brother been with you? Because he led it really well. Oh, he said, he's been saved about two months. And he was an elder within two years. Now, that was, A, he was already a mature man and respected in the community. B, sorry, I'm doing my lists, <laughs> but you're still getting the story. There was a Turkish lady there who'd been a Christian probably about 15 years, and I heard her say, or it was told to me that she said, I wasn't sure what to do. So I went to Ali Arbi. That's this guy's name. 
Arby, his older brother. I went to Ali Arby and he said this, so that's what I've done. What that showed is it's not the length he'd been a Christian, but it was the respect in the community. You say, well, what about Ephesians, not a new convert? Doesn't say that in Titus. Ephesus was a long-established, mature church. When he had pointed out, when Titus had to appoint elders in Crete, they were all new converts, so they couldn't have said that. Okay. Just briefly, other potential issues. Can I just... Oh, no, it's 10 fast. I... <laughs> Are you okay? You sure? <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm just... <sighs> Hospitality and community works differently in different cultures. In a... Middle-class English context, you honour somebody by inviting them to your home. In Eastern contexts, you honour people by visiting their home. Okay. Very important difference. And we can get it wrong. In Western culture, it's perfectly okay to say, Let's get our diaries out, Western middle class culture. Let's get our diaries out. Ah, we're both free on Thursday evening in eight weeks' time. Let's fix that date. In Eastern culture, they say, we'd like you to come to our home. It is then your responsibility to telephone them the day before and telling them when you're coming. Okay. In more working class English cultures, it's similar. The idea of saying, come in six weeks, or even come to my home, it's much better to just pop round, have a cup of tea, and if there's some food available, serve that. Do you understand? But we get it wrong. Because our church is a predominantly middle-class culture, not biblical culture, but middle-class English culture, and wonder why we don't reach out. When we first planted Woodside Church, Scylla and I, because most of our early people came from what was then a council estate, we never knew how many people were coming in any day. I'd be working in the city of London as a banker, come home, and there would be a drug addict who was tempted to take them again, so they'd come around to our house quickly. So we were putting them up for two or three nights till the temptation faded. That's how we planted the church. Often had young people around our house. I had to leave very early in the morning to go to London. They didn't want to leave early because our house was like a place of refuge. So we'd just say, we're going to bed. Lock the door when you go. 
formality, informality, traditions and symbols. When our sort of churches started or got renewed in the case of all nations, it was at a time when English culture was changing from formal to informal. And we said, yeah, we're informal churches. And we saw that as a biblical value. Because it came along with all the other biblical value, like restoring gifts of the Spirit, restoring team leadership and all these things. But it wasn't. It, it was not wrong. But we were partly restoring biblical values and we were partly adapting to the changing English culture. So we became informal. Now, there's nothing wrong in that if it's culturally appropriate. But we have to remember that's what it was. Even how you address people that I alluded to earlier. Okay. And symbols. You know, we stopped having lots of symbols in our... I remember some of the battles you had in this church about taking some symbols out. Okay, ancient history, but I've been around a long time. But... We're now beginning to put the symbols back. So we have a big cross in the, lit up in the corner at Woodside now. Why? Because culture is changing. And millennials are ultra um, informal for most things, but love symbols. You understand? And, and I'll close with this, there's loads of other things I could say, but I'll close this. And it's changing from law guilt culture to honour shame culture, but not Eastern honour shame culture. Eastern honour shame culture is bringing shame on the family or the community. Millennial culture is shame on your identity. So you get shamed on social media, or you get honoured. Very different. But we have to teach grace in a different way. We have to teach grace to shame of identity, rather than simply guilt of sin, which they don't feel. Doesn't mean they're not guilty. You understand? Because we've got to rage all cultures, including changing cultures. I hope that's helpful.